Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jennifer Lee, and I am a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And my name is Jason Silverman, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. For this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Eric Benchamal to talk about the epidemiology of pediatric IBD, but also about personal productivity and musical inspiration. Dr. Benchamal is a clinician scientist and pediatric gastroenterologist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, Canada. He is the director and senior scientist in the Health Information Technology Program at the CHIA Research Institute, a core scientist at ICES. His primary area of clinical interest and research has been in pediatric IBD, and he's been amazingly productive in this area with over 140 peer-reviewed publications, and he has been supported by a number of investigator awards, and he was awarded the Rising Star Award. Award from Crohn's and Colitis Canada. So we have our first rising star. While most of our listeners will be aware that the face of pediatric IBD has changed dramatically over the past 20 years, the most significant changes have been in the incidence of very early onset IBD, or IBD in children under six years of age. There's also been increasing incidence of IBD overall in countries with previously low prevalence. On top of that, increasing use of biologic therapies has also exerted an influence on outcomes and quality of life for the children with IBD we look after. In this episode, Jason talks to Dr. Benchamal about these changes in the epidemiology and care of children with IBD. They also had a chance to discuss influences to an approach to personal productivity, as well as the influence of music. It was a great conversation. I wish I could have been there, but we hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as we do. On to the show. So, Eric, thanks so much for sitting down with me for an episode of Bow Sounds. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's been, I mean, the, the Bow Sounds so far have been amazing, and I've, I'm really honored to be one of the first speakers, I guess the first, in the top 10, in the first 10. Uh, but it's been an amazing podcast so far, so I hope, I hope everybody finds this one as useful as they found the others as well. I'm sure they will. Thanks, thanks for those kind words. And I really first appreciate Canadians. it. First Can- Canadian-only podcast. Right? Yes, this that's is, right. This is our can- official Canadian content. So we have to say we're out in a boot in <laughs> Montreal. <laughs> please, please. And uh, it's been a great CDWA, and it's been fantastic. <laughs> we'll use that over and over again. Lots of A's on this podcast. All right. Th- thanks for enforcing the stereotype. <laughs> no I re- really appreciate that. Thanks for calling me Udo about that. <laughs> a lot of our listeners... Uh, Many of our listeners, anyway, through NASPGAN meetings, will have come across you speaking about uh, inflammatory bowel disease, and we'll certainly kind of talk about that uh, a little later on. But some of them might not know some of the other things that you have a passion for, or you're interested in. And one of the things that you know I've known for a while that you've been really into um, academic and personal productivity, and that's a, a particular interest of yours. And it it actually led to the you writing that paper, Living Like an Academic Athlete, um, which was published in Gastroenterology in 2018. You should, you should download it. It's a great paper. Um, but so maybe you can just talk a little bit about like you've read a lot in the productivity space. You've, you've you know, followed other uh, speakers and, and, and other sort of uh, experts in the field. What, what are the things that you've learned about personal and academic productivity? Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like that up until about fellowship, I blindly groped my way through life and didn't really 
have any clear way of working or clear way of being productive. Um, and in fellowship, I found that the, the responsibilities, especially in the research fellowship, almost became overwhelming that I would have a bunch of projects on the go and then I would wake up in the middle of the night in a sweat, panicked because I had forgotten a deadline or I was worried that I didn't know when a deadline was. And uh, I read the book Getting Things Done by David Allen and that book uh, completely changed my life. It really, uh, you know, it, it, it gave me a system that I could use that organized me and uh, got my thoughts together. I mean, really the key point there is that you don't keep anything in your head, that you write everything down, that you're, you have a project list and you have a next actionable step for every project. And that really organized, uh, you know, I never, I didn't have to wake up in the middle of the night remembering something because I knew it was on my list and I was reviewing my list on a regular basis. So, you know, I think that, that system is not for everybody. You have to be pretty regimented and pretty methodical about using that system. But I would encourage people to develop some sort of system that gets things out of their head and onto a piece of paper or an app or something like that and makes them more productive in that way. I think the other, the other book that really changed my life was the book Deep Work by Cal Newport. I used to pride myself on multitasking. I, th I think you knew me back then. Mm -hmm. that I <laughs> loved checking email all the time. I had my email apps open at all, and I would answer email within two minutes. And I really thought I could multitask. I thought that that was something that I was good at and I could do. Uh, and I realized that nobody can multitask, and I wasn't doing anything really well. And, you know, having a focused block time to get deep work done, really focused work without distractions, has completely changed what I can get done. So I, I can get done in you know, a 10-hour day or an eight-hour day more than I probably got done in a week of work before. So I don't nearly have to work the number of hours, and yet I'm still getting what I need to done. So those two books, if you're going to do anything, I'd advise reading those two books or learning about those two types of concepts. Do you have any advice for making that a reality, You know, carving out that dedicated time on a given day? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you, you, to a certain extent, you have to be uh, sort of almost vicious in protecting your time. But I think the first step is to work with the people that you're working with, right? Work with your colleagues to develop your own system that works for everybody. So uh, I have buy-in from, for example, the nurse that I work with, Natalie, if you're out there, hi. <laughs> uh, but she, she has bought into my system where she knows that we have block time to review patient issues and otherwise, she does not knock on my door for patient issues. She doesn't seek me out unless it's an urgent issue. If it's an urgent issue and it has to be dealt with by the end of the day, she emails me. And if it's an emergency, like the patient is going to end up in the emergency room unless I respond to this, she'll text me. And I, she very rarely texts me and really rarely emails me as well. And most things can wait for that block time when we do our review. And I think that's most fair, obviously, for me and my time to make sure that I can get everything else in my life done, my, my academic productivity and uh, teaching and other things. But I think it's important for her as well, because she knows in the hours that I'm reviewing patients with her that I'm not focused on checking my email. I'm not focused on thinking about what grant I have to write. I'm, I'm focused on her. And it's the same with when I'm in clinic. I'm not thinking about everything else. I'm thinking about the patient in front of me, and I'm not, you know, I'm not thinking about the grant that I have to write. So I think by blocking the time, you're, you're making sure that your time is protected, but you're also giving the respect that your allied health professionals and your colleagues deserve uh, by making sure they have your full attention. Knowing your, that's another sort of productivity tip. It's, not, it's really a life tip is know, know what your priorities in life are, right? What, what's your vision for your life? What do you want to hope, what do you want to achieve in your life? 
And then you have to shape your week based on what you want to achieve in life. And for many people, obviously, family is priority number one. And then let's say I want to make an impact on the epidemiology and health services research of children with IBD, then that has to be priority number two. And I have to focus most of my time on that. For sure. Now, do you do you end up listening to music while you work? I do. So what's your uh, go-to soundtrack? Yeah. It's interesting because as a teen, I was always not, I was never a good studier. And so I started in university, started learning to study, to, uh, to sit longer hours. I would have to listen to talk radio. So I used to listen to the political talk radio. I became a bit of a talk radio junkie. Oh, wow. And then I think as I got older, my ability to multitask again has become less and less and less. So I went to t- from talk radio to any sort of music with lyrics or whatever. And I, I love rap music, so I would listen to rap music. Uh, and then it became, well, I can't do that. And now it's really, it depends on what I'm doing. So if I'm getting deep work done, I have a soundtrack, like I have a playlist on Apple Music of just deep work tunes. Most of they're all instrumental, uh, but they're all more high energy stuff that gets me moving and gets me going. Some of them are soundtrack stuff. Some of them, you know, uh, it's a whole variety of different things. Um, when I want to, I have a, a motivation playlist, like a, a energy playlist that I'll do, you know, when I want to get energized, that's a lot of pretty hardcore hip hop or uh, even some heavy metal, even though I don't listen to heavy metal music. Um, and then there's the other stuff that I, I'm also always have music on in the background in some way. Uh, I have favorite artists that I listen to and stuff like that. So it depends on what I'm doing. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the artists who have inspired you or who, who your, some of your favorites are? Yeah, so it's a pretty, everybody sort of knows that about me, that I'm a massive Prince fan. <laughs> I've been a, a huge fan of Prince uh, for a very long time. Uh, actually, since after he was popular, I sort of got, started getting into him in the early 90s. Um, and he's a huge inspiration to me. He was a huge inspiration. He still is. Uh, you know, I think the his work ethic is a big thing. I mean, you know, there's a whole bunch of different reasons. Obviously, he's musically, he has, it's such, so prolific and so, such a huge variety of different styles of music from, you know, funk to pop to R&B to hip hop to, you know, jazz and instrumental and classical. He even, he's in, even has a classical album. Uh, that huge variety is kind of a, an inspiration to me as well. It kind of shows me that it doesn't really matter, you know, you don't necessarily need to stick to your lane in research as well. Like it's good to be specialized, but it's also good to, to experiment outside of your regular, your regular kind of comfort zone. Um, otherwise, you're not pushing yourself forward. So I kind of view that as an inspiration to collaborate with people who are way outside of my regular field whether that be you know, non-pediatricians, whether it be pediatrics in different specialties. But even more importantly, these days, I think it's like computer scientists and engineers, because in my field of using large data sets uh, for epi and health services research, uh, you, you need to be looking at AI as the future, a future major tool. It's not the end all and be all. It's not gonna solve all the problems, but it's certainly a tool that, is, that has huge potential and there's no way that I, as an epidemiologist or a clinician, I'm never going to be the expert in that field. You need to collaborate outside the field and in order to push the field forward. You, you mentioned, in, you know, as part of your, your last answer, talking about sort of how, how Prince's diversity in, yeah. in his career kind of inspires you when you think about how to branch out um, in, in research. But um, 
within research, one of the things that, that you've had as a really strong point is you, you've, you've carved out kind of a unique niche within pediatric IBD in terms of doing population-based research yeah. in, in IBD using administrative data. Charles Bernstein is the one who sort of uh, was the, the father, I won't say grandfather, he'll kill me, <laughs> the father of all of this. But it was really, um, Anne Griffiths, really my mentor in Toronto when I was a fellow, suggested because these data were available in Ontario and nobody was using them for gastroenterology, why don't I meet with uh, my other mentor in Toronto, Astrid Gutman, who was a pedi general pediatrician who had access to these data at ICES, uh, which houses all the population-based data for Ontario to learn about how to use it. And um, I think without that trigger of saying, listen, this was done in Manitoba by Charles Bernstein in adults, why don't you start looking at doing it in Ontario uh, in pediatrics? So I think there the key is mentorship, right? Like the, there is, the key is having somebody around you that is looking out for you and that uh, has ideas of where the field is going one day instead of just repeating what has already been done. Yeah, uh, so, so obviously for you and and helped kind of guide you or, or made a suggestion for you uh, in terms of who else you could link up mm -hmm. with. Um, having made that first connection, you know, how, how did you find mentors or those other people to support you or feed into your work? Um, so, I mean, I, I distinguish mentors from research collaborators. So mentors, are, I, I think all the way along, I've known that the importance of mentorship in, in my career building started off when I was a resident and David Mack was instrumental in, in getting me interested in doing GI and is still now a mentor to this day. Um, and so I've, I've always sought out mentorship, I think, uh, along the way. Research collaborators, I think to a certain extent it comes organically, right? Like if you're open to collaboration, and I would encourage everybody listening, if you're a fellow, be open to collaboration, right? We'll be willing to work with whoever and pull your weight. And I think they kind of grow organically, that, that ability to collaborate and the, the opportunities grow organically. Um, and so, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't seek it out necessarily. I think um, where I did seek things out, so for example, when I was a fellow, I, I did contact Charles Bernstein and he devoted a good amount of time sort of helping me on the phone, even though he was in a different province, helping me on the phone with the methods and what to look for and what to think about in using these data. And now in retrospect, I think, uh, obviously, I'm very grateful because he didn't, ha he didn't, he wasn't, I wasn't his student, I wasn't his fellow, I wasn't even in the same center or, and I wasn't even an adult GI fellow. And yet he was giving enough to devote this time. And I sort of, I try to shape my career today to be like that, like, giving in some way as best as I can to as many people as I can. So I, you know, even though things get busy and things get hectic and things get crazy, if a student or somebody wants some advice and emails me, I'll always speak with them about it. I'm very happy to do that. Because without that sort of giving attitude of a whole bunch of people along the way, I wouldn't be where I am now. Oh, that's great. And, and you know, you talked about obviously working with Charles Bernstein outside of pediatric GI, and you've worked with a number of people outside of pediatric GI mm -hmm. and, and even outside of GI entirely yeah. um, to, do, to do the work that you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that kind of cross-pollination um, of skills and perspectives and what those other people bring to your work? Yeah, so I think it's a, f a few things. I mean, for me, part of... Part of the impetus for me to work with people outside of GI is kind of one of my personal goals is to build uh, data research 
in Canada and in my center. So if that's my personal goal, I need to instill the importance in data research and uh, work with other people to try to help them do proper data research uh, and, and build capacity. So it's sort of my own personal goal to do that. But I think more than that, they give you a different perspective, right? Like if you're stuck in your own clinic and not getting the input from other people, uh, the questions that you're going to be able to ask are limited. And many of the questions in chronic diseases, whether it's IBD or whether it's diabetes, asthma, anything, the questions are very similar. And some of the, the things that we look for in IBD will cross into other systems, right? Like mental health and, and osteoporosis and other things. So I, I think it's good to kind of branch out and try to learn from other people while you're helping them do stuff. Uh, I think is the bottom line. That's great. Um, you know, we've been talking about health services research, the type of uh, research that you largely do. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of our listeners know what that means. So <laughs> could you just maybe talk to us a little bit about you know, what is health services research? Yeah. So, I mean, I, what I define, I, I'm sure there are other definitions, probably stuff in textbooks that I've never read before. But my definition of health services research is research that looks at how the healthcare system is treating people and patients. So not necessarily patients with chronic diseases, but any sort of person living in the community and trying to improve, most importantly, trying to improve the way the health system treats people. Um, So it's a kind of a a systematic evaluation of the healthcare system and then improvement afterwards. Okay. And now you've been doing research using administrative data. Yeah. What are the sort of benefits and challenges with the type of research that you've been involved with? Lots of challenges, but benefits. I mean, the benefits are easy. I mean, when it when it comes to health health system data, you want health systems research. You want to look at data that reflects the way the actual healthcare system is treating people, right? So, you can do health services research in the form of a clinical trial. You can do a randomized controlled clinical trial of an intervention on the healthcare system, but just like every other type of RCT, it may not reflect what is actually going to happen on the ground once the change is implemented. Or so health administrative data is actually what is happening uh, in the healthcare system, told through the story, through the lens of billing codes and hospitalization codes and and big data sets. Right. The other benefit in Canada anyway, and this is not the case in every country, but in Canada, the provincial health administrative data reflects, because we have a universal healthcare system, everybody, every legal resident with a valid health card number, which is more than 99% of the population, are contained within those data, which means you can track everybody along the way. And most people don't leave a province. They're sort of born there and then they die there. So like in terms of longitudinal research, epidemiology research and outcomes research, it's really, you don't have any comparison, right? It's for very cheap uh, access, comparatively, you can track everybody in a province, for example. And that's obviously the Europeans have known that for many years, especially in Northern Europe. Uh, their data is, is second to none in terms of the ability to, to see the big picture of what's going on in the world. Many, 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 many challenges. Um, you know, the data, there's, I can't, you know, obviously on a podcast, we can't show diagrams, but there's a Venn diagram of, with big data, you can get fast, you can get cheap, and you can get high quality, but you can't. You can get two of the three, but not all three, right? So that that Venn diagram of those three circles in the middle is nirvana. You're never going to reach it. Forget it, right? So in Canada, our health administrative data is really fast and cheap to access, uh, but the quality is not great. So that's one of the first things my PhD supervisor said when I met her is 
you know, I know you want to do epi research. You want to find out the incidence of pediatric IBD in Ontario, and you want to look at what the surgical rates are doing. But if we don't know that the people with those codes actually have pediatric IBD, all of your research is kind of useless. So you have to sit there and validate. And so I started off in a master's thesis saying, all right, I want to do an epi study. And I ended up doing the validation of the data for the master's thesis and then extending things to a PhD thesis and doing all the other stuff afterwards. So it was sort of, you know, the message was you have to devote the time to the methodology, Mm -hmm. to making sure that the methods you're using are valid and complete and accurate if you're going to rely on health administrative data research. And that's what I've gone, you know, moving forward is we've tried to do our best to both validate as much as possible, as much as is feasible, uh, because it is time intensive and cost intensive to validate administrative data, but also uh, try to advance the methodology in the way we're looking at these data, right? So trying to develop new methods that might better reflect the question that we're asking. You've published really extensively on uh, the changing epidemiology of pediatric IBD. You know, we're seeing uh, huge numbers here in Canada. Uh, about 0.7% of the population are affected by Crohn's or colitis. And we're expecting that to rise to about 1% of the population uh, by the year 2030, based on some of our studies using large data sets. And so it really is a Canadian problem and has been long known that Canada has one of the highest rates in the world. However, it's become really a global disease where we're seeing very rapid rise in what we consider to be developing nations, nations that have become either more westernized or more economically developed recently. So that started with the Eastern Bloc countries, the former Soviet Bloc countries in Eastern Europe, where as soon as the, the Iron Curtain fell, the rates skyrocketed. And now we're seeing high rates in India. Uh, We're even seeing rates in China, which uh, we didn't see previously. And China is thought to be a a very low prevalence country. But now we're seeing quite high rates in in China and in the Middle East and North Africa. So while it started off as sort of a Western disease with Canada being, you know, up there in the number one position of, of Western nations, it's become a truly global disease. How it impacts children is really, really important because they're going to live with it for their whole lives. So the inflammation can be body-wide, as I mentioned. In children compared to adults, it tends to be more extensive, meaning it affects more of the bowel. Uh, and especially with ulcerative colitis, although perhaps with Crohn's, but especially with ulcerative colitis, it tends to be more severe. Uh, and so they're more likely to present with severe colitis needing hospitalization. They're also more likely to need a colectomy than adults do. Um, and again, because it's a child, it affects uh, aspects of development that the adults don't worry as much about. So mental health are, is a big issue, especially in adolescence. The The average age of onset is still, the, the peak age of onset is still people in their 20s, early 20s, but the average age in pediatrics is about 13. So you can imagine, you know, 13-year-olds as they're developing, as they're going through puberty, and as they're dealing with all the stuff in high school that kind of sucks that we all have had to deal with. They also have this chronic disease involving pooping and involving pain and all this stuff. So uh, the the mental health implications are huge. It affects other body tissues like the joints, the bones, and growth. So certainly growth is a big issue, especially in Crohn's disease. And then um, it affects their productivity, right? They may affect their choice of careers. It may affect where they go to school and what, what they're studying. And so, you know, all the indirect costs that are associated with having a chronic disease, especially one like Crohn's or colitis, are, are really important to study for us. Uh, and then obviously the, the impact on the family. The, you know, it's an entire family dealing with a chronic disease, not just one person. So that's really important. 
So you've mentioned a lot there in that answer about uh, the different trends that have happened over time. Mm -hmm. You're seeing, we're seeing rising rates of inflammatory bowel disease really worldwide, you mentioned. Um, Can you comment a little bit about the sort of differential progression or or the the difference in the numbers between pediatric and non-pediatric IBD? You know, what rates are are growing at a faster rate? Right. So let's distinguish incidence from prevalence first, so that people who are not epidemiologists in the audience understand. Prevalence means the number of people living with IBD, actively living with IBD at any one given time. So let's say the number of people living with IBD on July 1st of this year. Incidence means the number of new diagnoses you get, usually per year. So uh, the number of new cases that are diagnosed by a physician. Um, So prevalence is increasing across the board. Prevalence is increasing in all age groups across the board, especially in elderly people. Uh, The elderly group is actually the fastest growing group of people living with IBD. And that's probably because our population is growing. They're also aging. And so people who are diagnosed in their 20s and 30s are now older and living. Thankfully, people don't die from this disease anymore, for the most part. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing much many more elderly people with IBD, which is going to have huge implications on our healthcare system, because obviously their health in general is complex at times. As you get older, more medications, more interactions, other chronic diseases, things like that. So that's prevalence. That's what's happening prevalence. And I think they're seeing it everywhere in the Western world. What's happening in incidence, so the number of new cases being diagnosed, we saw a very rapid rise in incidence during the 20th century, especially in the Western world, and then now in other countries, you know, globally. Uh, But in the Western world, the incidence seems to have stabilized overall, especially in the adult group. However, what we found in Canada is that the incidence continues to rise in children and especially young children. And in Canada, we did a Canadian, pro- uh, Canadian province, multi-province study, uh, including five provinces, that found that the only age group with a very statistically significant rise in incidence are children under five years old, so the very early onset IBD group. They're rising by about 7 to 8% per year of that study, which was between 99 and 2010. So we're seeing much younger cases than we did before. Overall, we're probably not seeing this, you know, more new cases. It's probably generally stable because the adult group is stable. But the cases that we're seeing are much, much younger than before, which has implications for how they're treated and and obviously the the resources that we need as pediatric gastroenterologists. Uh, It used to be almost unheard of to see a child under 10 diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And now we all know we see tons, like it's all over the place. And so that that changes what kind of resources we might need and how we think about the disease going forward. What are, what are some of the possible explanations for th- that rapid rise, particularly in that very early onset group? Yeah. So I think um, that's the question I always get. It's it's it's. I can't answer that for certain. I have theories, so I'll give okay. you some theories. Sure. Um, we like theories. Yeah, theories are good. <laughs> when you can't answer anything, you just give a theory. Um, so firstly, I think there's no doubt that, that better recognition and earlier diagnosis is a major factor, right? I, I used to, so I, I trained in Toronto, and we used to do multidisciplinary rounds at Mount Sinai Hospital the, with the adult group. And Gordon Greenberg, who, again, sort of grandfather of IBD research in Canada, used to say that he regularly would see uh, people in their early 20s present to the adult hospital with horrific strictures and obstructions. And like clearly, now that we know that Crohn's is a progressive disease, this was clearly years and years of being undiagnosed 
and having the disease. And even back then, he's passed away, unfortunately. But uh, even while he was living, he said, we just don't see that anymore. And that was 10, 15 years ago. So I think access to specialist care, access to pediatric gastroenterologists, better access to scopes, better scopes in general, right? I mean, our, our fiber optic scopes with amazing high definition images and better knowledge that this is a possible diagnosis amongst the generalists, the family doctors and pediatricians, means that we're catching it early, which is good, right? You're, you're catching it early, you're intervening early, and they probably have better outcomes as a result. So that's probably one explanation. I don't think it explains everything because we're not seeing a decrease in the incidence of adult onset disease, right? It's stable, right. but it's not decreasing, which means the increase in pediatrics, it's not just that we're shifting the, the meter earlier. Right. It's, there's other things going on. Uh, and then you have to start to think about the cause of IBD. And that's sort of that, again, the other Venn diagram that we always <laughs> see in gastroenterology is the genes, environment, microbe, interaction right uh so genetics there have not been any nuclear accidents in canada to explain why genes might change you know no major mutations we don't have x-men running around or anything like that but what we do have is a change in the genetic background right we have change in immigration canada really is a country of immigrants we a, a huge population of immigrants here or, or uh, sort of first generation canadians who were born to the children of immigrants myself included and what we've seen in the past 20, 25 years is a change in the genetic background where in the 90s in Canada, the number one immigrant group were people from East Asia, primarily from China and Hong Kong. And we know that, again, like I mentioned earlier, people from China and Hong Kong have very low rates of developing IBD, both in their home country and also in Canada. Uh, however, the number one, number one immigrant group now in Canada are people from South Asian origin. So people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. And repeatedly, the studies that have looked at immigration have shown that people from that region of the world probably have the genetic background for getting IBD. They're seeing more of it in India, for sure. Uh, but when they come to the Western world, they seem to have very high rates of developing IBD. And we did a study in Immigrants to Canada, which showed that to a certain extent, that uh, people from that region of the world, if you were an immigrant, you had a fairly low rate of developing the disease after you arrived. The earlier in life you arrived, the higher the rate. And uh, the children of those immigrants from South Asia who were born in Canada had the same high rate of developing pediatric onset IBD as other Canadians, as non, you know, the children of non-immigrants. And that was also the, same, the case for other regions, North Africa and the Middle East primarily. But it was particularly striking in people from South Asia because that's our number one immigrant group now. So I think in that way, it, it emphasizes that the genetic background has changed to uh, people with a higher risk of developing the disease and that there are environmental risk factors as well. That's the, the environment part of, of the genes environment microbe. There are environmental risk factors that when you're exposed early in your life, you know, the younger you are at arrival to Canada, so early exposure to the Canadian environment, your risk goes up. And likelihood is those environmental risk factors are changing your microbiome, changing your gut bacteria in a way that results in that change being permanent. And then, uh, you know, your genetics kick in later on and you get that dysregulated immune response to the change in the microbiome. So I think it's a combination of, of different factors, the genes, the genetics, the environment and the microbiome that are probably leading to this increase in incidence.
Is there anything that uh, practitioners, people listening to the podcast right now, anything that people should be taking away that might change our practice or or change our perspective uh, when we're when we're looking after our patients? I, I think the message to take away is probably that we need to be prepared and we need to figure out a way that we're going to treat these patients that perhaps um, changes the way we practice a little bit. Because again, it, you know, it's both the pediatric and the resources pr- needed to see more and more patients, but it's also uh, the the use of biologics, which have obviously changed greatly in the past ten or fifteen years. We're using far more biologics, so when you kind of mix the increased incidence in pediatrics and the very sharp rise in the use of biologics, which admittedly has changed the way we've treated kids and they're doing better and they're more likely in remission and they're getting healing and they're having fewer surgeries, but the cost to the healthcare system is massive. And I think at some point, and I think it's starting to happen now, at least in Canada, that the healthcare system is starting to push back and say, we can't afford this. You know, we need to figure out a way uh, to better resource things and and more smartly resource things, you know, in in a more planned way that um, allows us to treat these patients well and allows them to live healthy, normal lives. Do you have any um, advice, maybe if you had one message about changing practice or suggestions for people to ponder in their own practice um, that you that you want them to take away? Um, I think that the message probably would be treat each child as an individual. Don't assume that every child is like every other child. I think you really we're we're not at the point of precision medicine or personalized medicine yet but we're getting there and i think the you know the therapeutic drug monitoring the treat to target approach of making certain that what you're doing is working and very carefully reassessing the patient and very carefully reassessing both inflammation so are they do they have any active inflammation but also their quality of life right making sure that the drugs that they're using are not causing them more harm than than good I think that would be the message that I, I want to send. And so that personalized approach uh, impacts both the patient, obviously, and family to a huge extent, but also impacts the healthcare system. If we're more careful, if we're more judicious in our use of these medications and we're more aware of what's happening to our patients, uh, I think the outcomes will be better and I think the care will be more efficient and the quality will be better. So that would be my main message, I think. Sounds pretty good to end there. Uh, listen, Eric, thanks again for, for joining me today. My pleasure. This was great. It was a lot of fun. Okay, great. And we'll hopefully talk to you again in the future when you get that updated data. Absolutely. Thanks, Jason. Well, I had a fantastic time talking to Dr. Eric Benjamal and want to thank him for taking the time to sit down with us. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did. Yeah, my biggest takeaway from that was really his ability to get things done and really having a next actionable task for each of his projects. I just thought that that was brilliant. But anyway, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on the upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and you want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there is a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspigan.org. 
And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPEGIN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Until next time, see you later. Bye for now. Stay safe, everyone.